I've entitled the sermon, Love Hurts. And we're going to see today how far off we really are in our understanding of what love is, what it means, how it acts. Verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. This is the second time in this farewell discourse that Christ has said these things to these men. The first time is found back in chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. The things that he said to them there was that they were not to let their hearts be troubled, but they were to believe in him, and that those that do believe in him will do the same works that he has done, and even greater works, that if we do believe in him, love him, that we will keep his commandments, and that he will not leave us as orphans, but he will send the other paraclete who will no longer live just alongside of them, but will live inside of them. And he's going to do that forever. And then the last thing that Jesus said prior to all these things, that comment there is this, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. It's verses 23 and 24 of chapter 14. And today in our text, he's using that same phrase. I said all these things. But now he's referring, he's making reference to the things that he said. And the things that he said prior is that the world was going to hate these men. He's intending for them and us to understand that the message of the gospel is not intended to strengthen and encourage us despite times and circumstances, but it's intended to strengthen and encourage us in the midst of difficult times and rough circumstances. No one likes going through hard times. Having pain be their constant companion. No one likes the reality of divorce the reality of bankruptcy, or even the reality of death as the reality that they have to live with, live in, and live through. These things are hard. They're painful. And they are reality. And none of them are outside of God. Remember what God is? God is the creator of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. And all things happen through him or by his will. These hard things are of him. And he has intended them for our good and for his glory. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus knew that love hurts. And it's his intent to comfort these men before the real pain begins in their life. The real pain that comes from his love. And for them to understand how him saying these things will keep them from falling away. Because the pain that they will experience, the pain that you experience, that difficult spouse, that difficult child, that horrible job, that chronic illness, the economic downturn, they are his will in our lives. And we must live knowing that all things work for good for those that are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28. But for these men, the hard things that Jesus wanted to prepare them for was a bit different than what we are going to go through. Verse 1 of our text follows on the hills of these men, these men being told that the world was going to hate them because of love. Because the Father loves the Son and sent him into the world. Because the Son loves the Father and does only those things which he sees the Father doing. Because the Father and the Son love these men. 
and he will send the other paraclete to them to teach them and guide them and comfort them. And because these men have been given the heart to love Jesus, the world will hate them. And I have said these things to keep you from falling away. Love hurts. Don't get me wrong, though. We who have been redeemed, we all know the joy that is knowing Jesus. We all know the joy of being able to recognize him as Savior. We have experienced the reality that we have peace with the Father, that our sins have been washed away. We have wondered at the truth that he has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. And he sees us now as right. He sees us now as righteous. Now, not some point in the future. He sees us now as righteous. But these men, though, were facing the reality of having the person of Jesus leaving, and not just going away on a trip. But he had told them that he is going to lay his life down. And as hard as that had to be for them to comprehend, for them to wrap their minds around, they also had to contend with the truth that it would be those that had the word of God, that taught the word of God, those that revered the word, that looked to it as a thing that sealed them and separated them from the rest of the world. It would be they that would arrest, torture, and kill the author of life. These men had to deal with that as reality. And then the reality that those same men would also hate them as well. And then beginning in verse 2, Jesus foretells them of what is coming in their lives. They will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. How's that for a uplifting truth? Imagine, if you will, what it would feel like, how it would seem to have those that call themselves Christians, those that the world and all that is of the Orthodox world, imagine them, imagine being told that they are going to excommunicate you, that they are going to hunt you down and kill you just because of your devotion to Christ. This is the reality that these men would soon face. This is one reason that Jesus commanded that these men love one another, because very soon, one another was all they were going to have. And then to add to the reality of what they should expect to see happen in their lives, Jesus then tells them of another hour as well. Back in chapter 12, verse 27, we're told that Jesus came for his hour, that his hour was an hour of death, and that this hour was the goal of his life. But these men have an hour as well, as do all those that hate the Father and the Son. And the hour for the haters includes death, just as the hour of Christ does. But their hour of death is at their hands, in obedience to their God, the hour for Jesus and the disciples is an hour of death as well, at their hands, in obedience to, true, to the true and living God. And in verse 3, the why of all these hours is given to us. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Saints, these men were real. This isn't just fiction. This isn't just words and names on paper. These people were real. They were men just like us. They had lives. They had hopes. They had desires and dreams and aspirations just like you. These men didn't want to be hated. They mourned at the state of their country, the state of their culture. But they would be hated and they would be killed and they would tell the truth. The words that Jesus spoke will keep them from falling away. 
Peter would stand up in just a few days, a few hundred yards away from where they were now. And in the middle of the place that hated Christ, Peter would stand in the midst of the crowd of people that murdered the author of life. And he would confess the truth. He would proclaim the truth. And thousands would be made to see their sin, would be allowed to see their murder, would feel the pain of the reality of who they were. And they would cry out, Brothers, what are we to do? Acts 2.37 This pain that they felt, that is love. Revealing the truth of who they are is love. The answer to their plea that they made then remains to this day. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38 The gift of the Holy Spirit, who gives you peace with God, gives you the gift of the joy of Christ. All this flows from and through love. As God showers his lavish love on you, then you will love him. And then out of love, he gives you one more gift. He gives you the gift of being hated by the world. And Peter has seen all these as gifts from God to him and on all who call on his name. And then in verse 4, Jesus said, I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, that you may remember that I told them to you. In, G in verse 4, Jesus reiterates that which he said back in verse 1, these things I've said to you. What he's doing is he's framing the things that are important to understand. He is emphasizing the importance of them. He's saying, remember, so that you will not stumble when the reality of their hour of the world comes. That hour, which is the catalyst for the hour of God, the hour that is the perfect will of God, the hour that is the greatest demonstration of love ever. Because no greater love has a man than this, that he would lay his life down for his friends. John 15, 13. Their hour, that demonstration, is the hour of death for God's Son. And the hour of death for the Son is the hour of victory in Jesus. Love hurts. And that second sentence in verse 4, that sets up the reason that they should remember. Why they won't fall away. There's something new about to happen. He says, I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now... I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Up until the point in the disciples' lives, they were living with Christ. But soon he was going away. And that is all going to change. And they now must learn to live with Christ, not alongside of them, but in them. And in verse 5, Jesus says that none of them had asked them where you were going. But I seem to remember a while back, Peter asking, Lord, where are you going? He said that. He actually, Peter asked that back in chapter 13, verse 36. He said, Lord, where are you going? But what we need to understand from his answer back in chapter 13 is that Peter was preoccupied with himself and not with doing the will of the Father. In chapter 13, the answer that Jesus gave Peter then was, where I am going, you cannot follow me. But you you will follow me afterwards. Jesus answered the question of Peter, where, you're, where are you going? The one that was all focused on himself and that would all, and he was wondering about what's going to happen. 
What's, how's this all going to affect me? He answered him this way. Peter, you shouldn't be so preoccupied about yourself. You need to understand that out of love, I am occupied thinking and acting on your behalf. You're trying to figure out where I am going in order that you can figure out how you can follow me. You're asking this, trying to figure out how this is going to affect you. What he and the rest of the disciples should have been asking themselves, and even Jesus, the question that would have provided real answers for them, that would have given them peace and the joy that he promised, the question that they should have been asking is, where are you going, Jesus? In other words, why is it of such importance that you go away? Why must you return to the Father? Saints, can you answer that question? Have you ever stopped to ponder that question? Why did Jesus have to go? And where did Jesus say that he was going? Many people will answer, well, he's going to heaven. But that isn't what he said. And why is it important that he went? Have you ever pondered why the son had to go to the father? Why didn't he just remain? Because he was perfect. He was actually perfect. There was no sin in him. He was not bound by sin. He could have lived eternally in human form. Wouldn't that have been proof positive that God is real? You think about that. A 2,000-year-old Jesus walking amongst us now? Wouldn't that have answered all the skeptics? Wouldn't that have been better? After all, Jesus is the greatest demonstration of love that ever walked the earth. Wouldn't have him remaining been better? No. Jesus had to die. He was born to die. Because if he did not, then we would all die. Every last one of us. Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. John 10.10. And the life that he gives is different than this existence that this world fights for, strives after. The life that he gives is real life. And this life is given us because of love, purchased through his death. The love that the Father has for the Son hurt. It hurt the Son to be separated from the Father the first time in the incarnation, and even more so on the, at the second time, so much so that the only words that ever were cried out during his martyrdom was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as Jesus has acknowledged here, the reality of him going away, the love that he has given these men for him hurt. It caused them agony, grief, it had filled their hearts with sorrow. And what Jesus said to these men in verse 6, which is rendered and, and to us, translated for us as, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, is better translated as, grief has filled your heart. It has pervaded, taken possession of your heart. That's how these men felt. He's already given them the cure for their troubled hearts, though. He's already told them, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. I don't give you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away, and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice that I'm going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. That's chapter 14, verse 27 through 30. What Jesus was doing here was he was pointing their love, their affections, away from him and to the Father. He is desiring them and us to be God-centered, that we will make his will, his mission, his purpose, his glory, the center of our lives, just as it was the center of Jesus' life. What Jesus is doing in verse 6 is unmasking the disciples' real object of affection. 
the real object of their faith. Their wrong understanding of the person and work of Jesus. He revealed to them a golden calf in their hearts. And prepare yourself for this, though. You may find this shocking. The golden calf that was in their hearts was Jesus. He had become a golden calf in their hearts because they had allowed their own desires, their own wills to reign over the reality of Jesus. What Jesus wanted them to see, to understand, was that as good as life had been up to this point, the best was yet to come. They had looked to him as their protection or purpose in life. They love him, but they need to love God, the Father. And even their continued desire for fellowship with the Son is now a sinful desire in their lives because it displayed ignorance or disbelief of the love that Jesus has told them all about, the love that he had demonstrated for the Father. Ignorance in the person and the purpose, the mission of the will of the Son in desiring to obey the Father, in his desire to bring glory to his Father. Saints, don't be so shocked by this. Because as Luther said, our hearts are an idol factory, which is why we need to be continually washed by the water of the word. And why we need to know the one that washes us with the water of the word. But how had these men made a golden calf out of the love of Jesus? They had done this by putting Jesus in a box by predetermining what he would and would not do. He would never allow that to happen. Jesus would never do this. He loves me. He will never cause pain in my life. But think about what was about to happen, what he was going to allow to happen in these men's lives. If they continued to worship a wrong idea of Jesus, when all the pain and suffering that was about to roll over them like a freight train, when that came, they would fall away. And then in verse 7, he tells them and us why their desire to hang on to their version of the mission of the Son is sin. He has a better way. Jesus had to die. And he had to die in order that the advocate would come. Before we look at verse 7, listen to what Jesus said concerning this spirit back in chapter 14. He said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world can't receive him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he abides with you and will be in you. Verses 16 and 17. Now here's verse 7 again. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Our evangelical world is pretty strange. We Christians, we have been taught to focus in on Jesus, as we should. But we separate and we worship God as singles instead of a triune God. We have bands called Jesus Culture. We have churches that are called Spirit Church. We worship and focus in on a single member of the Trinity instead of worshiping and knowing God. Jesus tells these men that it's to their advantage for him to go, for him to ask for the other paraclete to come. And this is to their advantage his leaving is tied directly in with the, other, with the coming of the other paraclete. This is one of the weird things about being a Christian, is because life with Christ, life in Christ, comes with things that are paradoxical. Like the fact that we have dual natures. That we are saints entombed in bodies of sin all at the same time that we live in the already and the not yet of our salvation. We have been saved, and we are being saved. 
and that we worship one God in three persons, or at least we're supposed to. What Jesus is telling these men is that his departure is actually the fulfilling of his promise to them that he is going to remain with them eternally. And then beginning in verse 8, Jesus tells us of the ministry of the Spirit, his role in the redemptive history. He says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will not see me any longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The first thing that I want to point out is how Jesus speaks of this other paraclete. We in our modern religious world have a bad understanding of the person and work of the Spirit. In fact, some people don't even think of him as a him. They think of him as an it, as a feeling, something that happens out there, like a sixth sense or like women's intuition. Others think of him like a genie in a bottle. They treat him pretty much like King Saul did with that witch in Endor, thinking that we can summon him up. Only we conjure him up through quiet time, through prayer, maybe prayer and fasting. And when we do these things, he will come and he will confirm that those things that we desire, which contradict the word of God, that we are free to do them. Things like, it's fine to leave your spouse. Things like, it's fine to disobey the word of God. That's okay. Things like buying that car, that toy, that thing, that's just fine. By the way, though, this is exactly how Joseph Smith came up with that false religion of Mormonism. But Jesus is clear, crystal clear in telling us what the ministry, what the purpose, what the work of the Spirit is. And it's a twofold ministry, to convince and to condemn. And Jesus begins telling them about the negative side of this twofold ministry first. What we read in verse 8 contains very, four very strong words within it. Convict, sin, righteousness, judgment. And the last three of those words are all built off and flow from that first one. To convict. To convict is to sentence someone. To pronounce their guilt of a crime. We hear people say that a man is a convicted felon. That means that that man committed a crime, was captured, was arrested, was tried in a court of law, and was found guilty as charged. And at the same time, you may hear a person use this word convict when a truth has been revealed to them that pertains to them, such as, I heard her talking about being nice, and I was convicted because I had been cruel. Sorry, honey. The paraclete will do both of these things to the entire world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we need to see his work alongside of and working with the Son and the Father, not separate, but working alongside of the Father and the Son. Verse 9 deals with sin. In John chapter 1, verse 29, we are told that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Spirit, though, is the prosecuting attorney that has an airtight case against every human in the world, the world that does not know the Father, that hates the Father and the Son. Jesus takes away the sin of the world. The Spirit convicts the world of sin. And the people that compromise the entire world are all convicted of sin by the Spirit. This is the work of the Spirit in the lives of every person that ever lived, including you and me. And here, once again, we can see the reality of just how dead we are in our life. God had to send this other paraclete into the world to convince and convict us of our sin. We would have never come up on our own. We are so dead in our trespasses and sin that on our own, we can't even see how putrid, 
how rotten, what treasonous rebels we really are, and that we stand condemned because of it. Saints, love hurts. It's the loving grace of God to reveal this reality to us. And he has to send his spirit to the world to give us a new heart and a new soul in order that we can feel pain. The pain and hurt of the realization of our treason against such a great and holy God. And this is the positive side of the conviction of the spirit. The negative side, which verse 9 speaks about, comes because the world does not believe in Jesus. I want to stop right there because we need to be really clear about this statement. Because I can tell you that I'm married to Tracy and that this is a truth, but I'm not married to all Tracys. There are a lot of women out there named Tracy and there are a lot of Jesuses as well. Our landscaper in Hawaii was named Jesus. Jesus mowed my yard. And there are many people who claim the name of Jesus as their own. The Mormons do. The Jehovah's Witnesses do. So do the Muslims, as do the, the Roman Catholics. And in every one of those false religions, they are speaking of a different Jesus. And you can know this by what their Jesus does and does not do. Most importantly, the thing that he doesn't do is reign supreme as Lord. And because of that, he is not the only means of reconciliation to the Father. They all use Jesus as their own, just as many people do who sit in churches week in and week out. The importance of getting this right is told to us in Acts 4, chapter 12. Listen to this. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven which among men is given, which we must be saved. Are we to believe that all those that belong to all those religions that have a Jesus in them, are we to believe that they're saved because they use that name? Maybe we should just unify and go along to get along. Maybe it just doesn't matter. Or maybe the name of Jesus means the nature of Jesus. Maybe the name of Jesus is tied in with all those I am statements that he continued to make. Maybe his name is synonymous with his nature. And maybe this is why the other paraclete can and does condemn the world, including those in those other religions that have a guy named Jesus in them because they don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. But how do you know that you are believing in the real Jesus or just a figment of your imagination. Maybe my old gardener. Does he obey his father? Does he demand allegiance? Does he demand that you obey him? And do you obey him? Do you love him to the point that you never use this word, but? When it comes to the sovereign control over your will and your life. You know that, but. I know that the Bible says that women aren't supposed to teach. But. I know that I'm supposed to honor my mother and my father. But I know that I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church. But we must make sure that the Jesus that we claim as our Savior is the Jesus of the Bible. This is of extreme importance, extreme importance, because there is, no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And the second thing that the Spirit convicts the world of is righteousness. Okay, this is a tricky one, tricky word for us. The term righteousness gets thrown around, used a lot. 
in my generation, it was actually used as a term to mean something that's really good. They, people would say, man, that's righteous. But what does it mean? What does righteousness mean? This is pretty important. Because this is something that the, the Spirit is used or uses to convict people of treason. And just as there's a positive and a negative sense to that word convict, the same is true of righteousness. God is righteous. Righteousness means morally perfect. The negative side, Isaiah 64, 6 is a great example of our righteousness. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. But the shocking thing is, the thing that God used this world at that time to convict these people of righteousness are the things of him. The temple that they had altered, the worship that happened there, that they had changed, the things that were taught there, the man-made rules that were put at the same level as the word of God. It was the law of God that would condemn these men of their sins. And the same can now be said of the false religions and many mainstream evangelical historical orthodox religions as well. The ones that ordain women, that celebrate homosexuality, that don't hold the church membership, that celebrate unity and diversity over holiness and scriptural orthodoxy. That's what he used to convict the religious world. But what did he use to convict the irreligious world, the agnostic world of righteousness? His law and his people. How did he do that? Because his spirit would soon not only be living alongside of these men, but in them. And they would love each other. And since Jesus is going away, and since he will no longer be with them, it would make no sense for these men to carry on loving one another. After all, the leader of the pack was gone. The leader of their cult was gone. He had died. It makes no sense for them to continue living the way that they were. But the lives of these men, serving within the body of Christ, living for the body of Christ, building the body of Christ, serve to convict the world of righteousness of God and its unrighteousness. And it is when they, we, preach the truth of God, when we live to the best of our ability the truth of God, strive to build the unity of the body for the glory of God, and we participate in the ministry of reconciliation that the Father gave the Son, it is in these ways that God will use us to convict the world, the religious world and the agnostic world of unrighteousness. And these are the two reasons that the world will hate these men. That's it. The, these are the two things that these men will do that will cause the world to hate them. Loving the body and preaching the word. That's it. These are the two things that these men will do that will cause the world to hate them. And through their testimony, the Spirit will convict the world of righteousness. Because it doesn't know the Son, the Son that went to the Father and now lives inside of these men. And at the same time, sits on the right hand of the Father, making, always making intercession for them. And the other paraclete will empower his people to preach his word will empower us to obey the command to love and will use his law, the law that these men will preach and live to condemn the world. But, but what about the world where there is no gospel presence? What about that innocent jungle dweller who has never heard the name of Jesus? Are they exempt? Do they get a get-out-of-jail-free card because of that? Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Nope. They know. Again, this is why we need to understand why the name of Jesus is not the name of just some guy. Jesus has revealed the golden calf to the disciples concerning him. Perhaps he's doing the same thing in this room here now, within some of us. How many of us claim to love Jesus, but because we think that we love a guy, just because he is a guy and not God, it really is no big deal how we live. But when we understand that to love Jesus means that we love his name, which is his nature, his righteousness, his justice, his holiness, it is then that we begin to see how off we are and what we have been taught concerning loving Jesus. Because it's those invisible attributes that have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Those are the nature of Christ. And this is why the Bible is crystal clear concerning salvation, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Which brings us to the last of the three parts of the ministry the Spirit given us, and that's judgment. Verse 11 tells us this, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus told the religious leaders, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That's chapter 7, verse 24. And it's this biblical principle that is the basis of this verse. And this has dramatic importance in our lives. What do we use to judge people? Do we judge people? Well, many people will tell you, many Christians will tell you, that it's wrong to judge. After all, judge not, lest ye be judged. Matthew 7, 1. But there, Jesus wasn't speaking to Christians, to the elect. He was speaking to hypocritical, irreligious, unsaved, that had used his word and his laws to bind the souls of people and condemn them to hell. And the reality is that all people do judge. You do judge. I judge. From the moment that you lay your eyes on a person, you are judging them. You are making assumptions, making evaluations, making judgments about them. You look at them and think, man, this guy's pretty tall. Nice haircut. He cares about what he looks like. Huh, look at his Bible. It's worn from use. You make judgments, and this is judging from outward appearances. The Spirit judges based on holiness and righteousness. But what about us? Are we supposed to judge or not? We're back in Matthew 7 again. After warning the hypocrites concerning judging wrongly, Jesus then turns to his disciples and he tells them, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them. There's judgment by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them, judge them by their fruits. Verses 15 through 20. We are to judge. And we are to judge by the lives that people live. Not the words that they say, but the lives that they live. Because the reality is that 100% of the time, you will know who and what a person is worshiping and serving by their life. What they get excited about. What they spend their time, their money on. 
what they make a priority in their life. And this is judging rightly. But before I move on to verse 12, there's one more thing from verse 11 I want you to take hold of. And that is the absolute certainty of Christ concerning the outcome of all the pain and suffering that he would endure in a few hours. When he said the ruler of this world is judged. There was no doubt concerning the ruler of this world. There is no celebrity death match going on in heaven between Jesus and Satan. Satan is a fallen, created being that has been captured, charged of his crime, convicted of treason, sentenced, incarcerated. He was judged long before Jesus became incarnate in his mother's womb. Time just needed to catch up with the reality of what had happened. Saints, love hurts. The love of Jesus for you and from you will bring pain into your life. But he's also given you hope and peace and joy. And in just a few verses, Jesus is going to tell these men, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. And that word tribulation there is also translated as pain, sorrow, distress, suffering, affliction, troubles. How many of us here know this to be true? How many of us here have not felt this as truth? And if and when we've made Jesus into a golden calf, it's then that we don't know where these troubles, these sorrows come from. But listen to Paul. Listen to him speak about the hope given to us by Jesus. Hope that we have in and because of Jesus. Romans 8.18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are, aren't worth comparing with the glory that is to be real, revealed to us. Who here wouldn't say that Paul's life was one that was marked by suffering? A.W. Tozer once said that it's doubtful whether or not God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And he wasn't a Calvinist. And Paul is the poster child of this truth. Five times he was beaten with the whip. Three times beaten with the rod. Once he was stoned. He had been shipwrecked three times. Once he was adrift a day and a night at sea. Many times he traveled all night, taught all night, lived with very little, was in prison for years for no reason at all. All because God loved him and desired to use him for his glory. And this isn't even mentioning the mental and emotional physical trials of, of all these physical trials that happened in his life. And it was this man who said that he considered the sufferings of this present age not worthy to be compared to the glory that is revealed to us. Can we say this? Would we dare make this kind of a statement? Or do you wonder at the tribulation and pain in your body, in your life? Or do you understand it all to be from God for your good and his glory? It is when you grasp that the tribulation that God has brought into your life is actually the most loving thing that he can do for you at this moment. When you can grasp that, it is then that you can echo Paul and understand. It is then that you will grasp that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Does this make sense? Will our lives make sense? Should our lives make sense to the world? No. This is the point. 
We are no longer living for the world. We are living for the real world. Does it make sense that you're going to commit your life and make decisions based not on money, job opportunities, better and more beautiful locations, but on your commitment to your local body? No. This is part of the judgment of the world. Does it make sense to the world that you do not pursue money to buy bigger and better toys, but rather use that money that God has given you to bring glory to him? No. And this is part of the judgment of the world. Now, we can come to verse 12 from John chapter 16. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus has told these men of the ministry of the coming paraclete. He has told these men of the pain that he would bring into their lives because he loves them to death and back. And Jesus is not being limited by these men. He would not have told them more if they had more faith. He wouldn't have told them more if they had just been smarter or stronger or better looking. What he meant in saying that he has many things to say, but that he could not bear them now, is revealed to us beginning in verse 13, when he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will be, not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Do you see the triune nature of God working there? Do you understand when we focus in and we think in our mind that we worship a man named Jesus, that we are worshiping a false god? You can't separate the Father from the Son, the work of the Father from the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit. And the work of the Spirit does not do separate things from the work of the Son or the work of the Father. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit of truth. It is he who would continue this conversation with these disciples that Jesus was having now. It is he who will tell them more things that they cannot bear now. And the reason that, this needs to, that they need to get this straight, to get this right, is that we need to get the ministry of the paraclete right. If we're ever to ensure that we are worshiping the right original paraclete, who is in the exact image of the Father. But did you take notice of the ministry of the Spirit? What things he's going to do? There are two specific things that we're told that he's going to do. And the first thing that he's going to do is he's going to guide us in truth. What is truth? That's the question of the ages. John 17, 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. How much value do you place on this reality in your life? How much time do you spend in this truth? How much of this truth have you committed to memory? How much of this truth do you know? How much of it do you love? Do you feel like you can't obey God? You don't, just, you don't understand this love one another thing. You sit there and you listen to me and you think that I'm speaking in a foreign language to you. Perhaps it's because although the spirit of truth lives inside of you, is guiding you in truth, he cannot guide you into something that you have not put inside of you. That which he has already given to you. Love hurts. Because God loves you. He's going to reveal your continued sin against him and your lack of desire to know him through his word, and how you think that this is irrelevant in your life, how you are willing to spend all your time listening to the talking heads, watching TV, playing video games, all the while his word, truth, sits on your desktop, 
It's on your phone, and you're going to go right past that app and right on to the video game. He loves you, so he convicts you of sin through the spirit of truth. The one that will lead you to truth, which is the word of God, which we are told in John chapter 14, verse 6, is Jesus. And it's through the application of the word that you are conformed more into the image of the Son as the Spirit reveals his righteousness within you. And the second thing that he does that is told to us in verses 14 and 15 is that he's going to glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. His primary purpose is to glorify the Son. How does he do that? He takes what is the Son's and declares it to you. Once again, his ministry is one of the word of truth. It's not emotions. It's not Miracle Mondays. It's not face-palming people and having them fall on the ground, writhing like snakes. That's the spirit of this world. The world that seeks after signs and wonders. The world that is religious. The one that mocks the word as the primary means of grace in the life of the believer. The ones that have to go to places called full gospel churches. They are the ones that have to attend places where the Spirit is alive, whatever that means. Where the sign of the word, which has been, has been replaced, the sign of the word is the cross. In many places, it's been replaced with the sign of the dove. They are the ones that find orthodoxy, word-based, word-driven, word-worship of God, boring and irreverent. And the spirit of truth can't be living within them if this is their reality. But this is why we must make the word, the word of truth, the center of our lives, the center of the life of this church. If we desire to know God, then we must make the word, his truth, the center of our lives. Have we done this? We, Clayton and I, your elders, we strive to make the word the center of this church. But you are the church. We can organize this service and the things of this service all around the word, centered on the word for the glory of God. But if we are truly to glorify God, to truly be used by God to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, then you and us, we have to make the word the center of our lives. We must take those practical steps to make this a reality in our life. We have to shut off the talking heads. Have the Bible read to you instead. Shut off those inane TV shows and listen to you. Or watch sound preaching. Or better yet, just pick up your Bible and read. Spend time thinking about the reality of the word. Chew on it. Meditate on it. Talk about it. I, I, I can't do this, you think. But remember that you're not alone. You aren't walking alone. Christ is with you. He is in you. He has sent his spirit to live in in you. And that has great practical implications for us, as told to us in Romans 8, 26 through 28. Because we think, I can't do this. But Paul tells us, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Isn't this how you feel? For we don't know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Again, don't get confused by the false teaching of this irreligious world that, that tells you that those groanings too deep for words are those times when you just don't know what to say and you're like, that's not what he means here. 
And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What is the will of God for his saints? To know him, to be sanctified by his truth, to be conformed into the image of his Son. And what's the outcome of the Spirit living inside of us, helping us in our weaknesses? We know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's happening, folks. You are being conformed into the image of his Son. That's an amazing truth. In order, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Game over. Done. No doubt about it. If he has given you his spirit, if you can recognize Christ as Savior, this is truth. And this is the reality of our lives. And God will inflict us with pain because he loves us. He knows that outside of pain and suffering, we don't like this truth, but outside of pain and suffering, our flesh will not be defeated and he will not be glorified. But he loves us. He died for us. And he lives in us. And in this truth, we stand. And in this truth, we fight. And in this truth, we plead. And in this truth, we glory at the love of God that hurt us so much that caused us to love him. Let's pray.